Hello. Different music, different presenter. I promise you it is still the Total Football Analysis Daily World Cup show. Uh, my name's Chris Darwin, the founder of Total Football Analysis. I've given Adam a couple of days off because the poor guy can't be around for every single podcast over the course of the World Cup. But I'm delighted to be joined today by Lee Scott, former legend of Total Football Analysis, who's gone on to become the chief scout of Velez over in Spain, and our new head of betting and affiliates, Lucas Mondeo, for all the way from Brazil. Welcome, guys. Lee, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Chris. How are you? Very well. It's been a very long time since we've done anything like this together. <laughs> As I had mentioned that to Adam when we recorded the first podcast together, and he can't even remember hearing those podcasts. Oh, well, we we have children that weren't even born before uh, before from the last time we actually did a podcast together. Lee. That's that's how long we've been doing this now. That's a worry. And and Lucas, great to have you on. Uh, a wonderful addition to the podcast from the one that I've been listening to. And of course, with Lucas being on the team, guys, we have to uh, make you all aware that this show will have betting conversation in it. So please try and be over 18 and uh, do gamble aware if you are thinking of placing a bet on anything. This is only advice. We're not saying go out and do it, obviously, and never, ever bet more than you are comfortable losing because we don't even know if the advice we're likely to be giving is any good or not. So so do be careful with all that kind of stuff and just use that that section as a, a way of enhancing your enjoyment of the analysis that we're providing and the, the good football that we're all watching in Qatar. But Lucas, um, how are you finding the tournament so far? Interesting, I guess we always have a tendency of seeing big teams a bit overestimated before tournaments like this. Argentina is obviously the biggest example, but uh, it, it's very interesting. I mean, now we're going to have a big game in the group stage between Spain and Germany, which already looks like a round of 16 game, right? It, it does. I mean, it's a sort of game that I, I certainly wouldn't be placing any kind of bet on because I think it's a really tough one to call, but we'll, we'll go into that a little in a little bit more detail in a moment. Uh, what we're going to be going over today then, guys, will be we'll, we'll look back at uh, England's draw with uh, the USA uh, from last night. Uh, we'll touch very briefly on Saudi Arabia versus Poland, which has just finished minutes before we started recording. And then we'll look ahead to some of tomorrow's games, uh, tomorrow being Sunday, and uh, we'll have a breakdown of what we think is going to happen there and how the betting markets are looking in, in that respect as well. So, Lee, obviously, you'll have been tuned into England's game against the United States last night, probably wearing your American shirt with your big star-spangled banner in the background and all your king, all your kids eating some kind of American food, yeah? Actually, this is quite controversial for a Scotsman, but I was literally just speaking about this to my wife last night, and I'm a little bit worried because England are almost at the point where they're actually likeable this time around. Normally in major international tournaments, obviously, people from around the United Kingdom who aren't English will grow increasingly more exasperated by the amount of times that commentators and, and presenters on the various broadcasts will speak about England when there, there's no England game in sight, and it becomes a little bit tiresome. But with the the non-footballing profiles of some of these England players, like say Marcus Rashford, Bukayo Saka, probably the most prominent ones, we're almost at a point where, where I was actually thinking that England were going to do quite well. Um, obviously, that didn't quite turn out to be the case last night, though. 
So, so you, you, you're suggesting immediately there, Lee, that a nil-nil draw against the footballing superpower that is the United States isn't a good result for England as they look to progress through this tournament. I, I recall the Euros where where we 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 scraped a nil-nil draw against uh, your your lot, and we still got to the final. So, should we be worried at this point, or or what? I don't think worried. Um, obviously, the Scotland national team are a much higher caliber than any team in this this World Cup. So that was quite the result in the Euros. But nil nil in a group stage game when you've already won your first game, it's not a disaster. Mm. I think the bigger disaster is the momentum and the general feeling around England that they they built up in that first game has kind of been burst by this performance and not just the performance, but some of the decisions made by the coaching staff um, in terms of player substitutions more than anything else. I think that England fans suddenly are maybe a little less positive than they were. I mean, a lot of people, I heard a lot of people say, well, it's only Iran. Iran are no mugs and they showed that against Wales that they're they're a good footballing team. And I think that in that first group stage game, I was really impressed by England and how progressive and forward thinking and incisive they were. But all of that just seemed to go out against the, out of the window against the, the US. And th- that is partially down to how well the US played, let's be clear. But England certainly did themselves no favours. And now they go into the third group stage game admittedly against a Wales side who've been quite poor, but they go into the third game needing some kind of result, a positive result in some way. And really, it could have been all done and dusted if they were more positive last night. You've touched on the substitutions there. So would I be right in thinking that you're alluding to to Phil Foden not being used? Yeah, absolutely. I think that Foden is not only England's most talented player, I think that he is one of the most talented young players in world football. Um, Feels very strange that he's not being used more prominently by Gareth Southgate at this tournament. I think that when... I understand Jack Grealish and Marcus Rashford coming on into the wide areas. Grealish, with his ability on the ball and an ability just to slow the game down and quicken it up, is very difficult to play against. And, and Rashford looked very impressive in his cameo in the first group game. So those substitutions made sense. But when you're looking to freshen up the centre of the midfield, taking off Jude Bellingham for Jordan Henderson when Mason Mount for Phil Foden made so much more sense to me, especially given that Harry Kane kept dropping back into midfield. Mm. And obviously, we know he does this a lot now for Spurs. He's very much a, a forward who empties the forward line and drops back and tries to dictate play. And when you have a player doing that, you need a player from the midfield who's able to make those vertical runs. And it just seemed set up for Foden to come on as that left-sided central midfielder to give a little bit of thrust and a little bit of forward movement and game intelligence that Mason Mount just wasn't giving them. I think that that's the biggest question. And obviously Gareth Southgate was asked about it after the game and, and didn't really give an answer. But England fans will quite rightly be wondering why Foden wasn't brought on. I was listening to Andros Townsend before the uh, Saudi Arabia game earlier, uh, and they were touching on England's tactical setup for it. And I, I was really interested in what he had to say because he was talking about how it might have made sense for England to actually go to a back three uh, during the game, given the amount of um, penetration that the states were getting down the side, uh, down the flanks of England. Um, and by doing that, that might, might, and it's always a might, of course it is, but might have then allowed the likes of Saka to stay higher in the pitch rather than him having to track 
uh, Robinson, the the American left back, so much in the game. What what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that might have been a, a change because Southgate's obviously it feels like Southgate's been a little bit hammered into right. You have to play a back four. And has he now gone away from even considering changing that in this in this stage? Would that have been an interesting tactical change to make? I think potentially, but I think it would have been more sensible to be more active in possession in terms of the way that England were playing. I think England were so passive last night as compared to the first group stage when game when they were very aggressive and incisive and progressive with the ball. They constantly looked to play at the final third. There were players in midfield making runs beyond. The fullbacks were getting up and around the outside. And when you play in that more positive way, the opposition is the one who then has to react. So mm. if you're looking to 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 find a solution to Alexa Robinson, who's an excellent player, um, the Fulham left back is one that I picked out before the tournament. It's something yeah. I was really looking forward to see at this level. But if you want to pin him back a little bit, then you need to be more proactive on the ball. You need to create situations where Kieran Trippi is able to get up and around and beside Bukayo Saka on that side so that Robinson is no longer able to make those forward runs and transition. But instead, of, I, I, I find it difficult with the back three for big teams especially. In this tournament, I think we've seen the Netherlands and Denmark playing a back three system, and they've really struggled in terms of ball progression and chance mm-hmm. creation from that. And I think that's somewhere that England would struggle as well. If you, Especially if you think you, you play the back three, then you have a double pivot in midfield. Who's the double pivot? Because if you're changing the tactics last night, chances are you would have been left with Declan Rice, who couldn't get on the ball because the, the American forwards were screening so well and yeah. preventing the centre-backs from passing out to him. And Jordan Henderson, who, as much as he is a, a good midfield player, he's somebody who really thrives in chaos and transition more than in a controlled setting as part of a double pivot. I don't think the back three would have been the answer. I just think that England needed to be more positive and, and more aggressive, but they seem timid and passive and very much at odds with their first group game performance. Hmm. Do you think the criticism that's coming England's way then is is also hiding from what was actually, but on the face of it, quite a solid performance from someone like Harry Maguire, who's being criticised massively and rightly so in some quarters going into the tournament? Yeah, quite quite possibly. I think that Maguire and Stones, it, it was a strange performance because defensively Maguire looked a lot better than we've seen in his mm. club career for Manchester United at least for the last 18 months um, he was positioning himself well he was making blocks clearances all the things that we know that he can do it's more for me it's more the on the ball side that we worry about with Harry Maguire more than anything else uh, you worry that at any stage you might give the ball straight to an opposition player when he's trying to do something a little bit too fancy so having him beside John Stones who's a very good ball progressor and obviously very well coached in the Pep Guardiola system at Manchester City. It gives a nice balance for for England. But I think that the criticism of England is perhaps more masking how good the US were. Yeah. Because they were very, very strong. There were some players on the basis of this game alone whose stocks in terms of recruitment have have risen markedly. Mm. And there will be a lot of interest being built in some of these players. I think that they were energetic. They were everything that England weren't in terms of not being passive, in terms of being aggressive and trying to break lines and trying to push forward. And that maybe played into Harry Maguire's skill set a little bit more because he was able to be that rock, if you like, that he, mm. he sees himself as for England. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. Do you think then the states of, I mean, look, probably being an arrogant English assumption here that we get through the group and into the next stage, but do you think the USA have set a bit of a template there for teams in a way of how to play against England? Because, I mean, nobody's going to really approach it like Iran did, where they sat back and just invited the pressure, which would have been fine if they hadn't conceded so many goals so quickly into the game. Um, do you think then the States being a lot more proactive, a lot more front foot will show other teams? And I'm talking about teams that may not be considered to be at the same level as England, but a way that they can actually go toe to toe with them in some in some cases. Yeah, I think that's in general a lesson that we're learning from this tournament. Mm. There are very few teams who have sat back in a deep block and tried to defend even a nil-nil before going behind. There are very few teams that have done that successfully. The only one so far is Saudi Arabia, and against Argentina, at least not against Poland. But in that match against Argentina, in the first half, Saudi Arabia did anything but sit in a low block. They were very aggressive, very high, trying to press and defend into that really high line. The um, the next point, though, would be that when they went back into a low, deep block, they were very much more effective when they were defending something. But every other team that we've seen do that has really struggled in this tournament. I think the US have the engines in midfield. Tyler Adams, Yunus Musa were absolutely immense last night. They were everywhere in terms of pressing down, closing passing lanes. Uh, getting tight to ball carriers and making sure they couldn't find space to play. I think that we will see more teams doing that against the bigger sides. I think that so far this tournament, the teams that have really stood out have been Brazil, England in that first game at least, France and Spain. And the same thing applies to all of those teams. Apart from Brazil, probably, the three European teams, I think that if you can be that aggressive and get around the ball that quickly, you can make life more difficult for them. If you're playing against Brazil, I'd be very wary about defending and, and pressing so aggressively because of the pace of Vinicius Jr. in the wide areas. I think that's the difference maker for them. But certainly, if I was a coach who was looking at going into a round of 16 or a quarterfinal clash with England, and I do think England will progress, I would be very much of the mindset that we need to play in a similar way, if not the same way, to the US. No, good stuff. And then, Lucas, obviously, so an England fan will be swinging between, we're going to win the World Cup after the Iran game, to, ah, Southgate out, we're absolute rubbish, um, after the USA game. What, what's the betting markets look like? And has there been much fluctuation in terms of, in terms of that with a view to England's progression or England even going as far as, God forbid, actually trying to win the thing? Well, if you consider the odds before the tournament, England had odds around seven to one to win the cup. But after the last round against the US, the, the odds actually are a bit bigger, around nine. I think it reflects the complexity of the situation of, at Group B, in, in the sense that uh, it's still not confirmed that the round of sixteen is, you know, <laughs> a reality for England. But uh, if you consider group situations it always affects the the odds at this stage however in terms of quality i think we can all expect england to be a strong contender but right now england is top four in the eyes of the market to win the cup and that, and that is interesting because i mean the bookies rarely lose too too big too often if they're, if they're still considering england to be fourth uh, in, in the top four potential for, for this. 
personally, I don't, I don't feel that we've seen enough from that. And I, I'm not falling into the, oh, it was only Iran camp too much. But Iran's tactics on the day definitely made it a lot in- easier for England to, to run out 6-2 winners. And we saw that Iran actually can go out and be very proactive um, in, in the game against Wales. But then you're looking at the other teams that are around it. And I still feel like there's there's a lot there. And the teams that have peaked early on this, maybe apart from Brazil, because Brazil, that felt a lot more controlled and they were, were up against a, a decent Serbia side. Um, everyone else still feels like there's a lot of teams in that in that middling pack. Who at the moment then, now that we've seen all the teams play at least once, Lucas, who, who else in the in the cluster of other teams do you think are looking like good value for the overall market well when it comes to good value you always need to consider odds that are in theory wrong and that Mm. give you more than they should in my opinion the odds for portugal and belgium are still a little bit big we have portugal with 13 to 1 and belgium with 23 to 1 which is even bigger than in the beginning of the tournaments and in my opinion, Brazil odds are not re- really good right now. It's 3.5 to 1, especially if, after the, the injury of Danilo, which in my opinion is a, a big blow in terms of how they were playing tactically. We, we have the big debate around Daniel Alves, whether he should be in, in the squad or not, which was really big in Brazil. So, yeah, you, you have very small odds to Brazil right now, especially after all the beautiful things that everyone saw in the first game. And uh, as a second contender, we have France and Spain with almost equal odds with the 7-1, to one, and then you have England. So, yeah, in terms of value, I would go with Portugal and Belgium and perhaps even Germany with odds of 27-1. to one. So, yeah, when it comes to betting, it's not just about, you know, who you believe will win. It's just like uh, the price matters a lot. Mm. It, and it's interesting after the, the the changes that happen after the first round of games because again I mean if let's let's say for example if Belgium go and win four nil uh, tomorrow uh, in their game that's going to become a lot shorter very very quickly of course it is and equally if Germany go out and win four nil against Spain with that I would imagine that would see the the odds probably slashed in half because of the the reaction that would be there to that so is is it a good is it a good way to not get too caught up in the results at the moment and continue looking at the underlying performance and the underlying metrics behind that. And then also finding value in teams that might not have done as well as everyone thought they would in the first game, but you can still be relatively confident that they are going to progress quite deep into the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that something that people often don't get about these kind of markets in, in the outrights is you don't really have to expect the team to win. For example, as you said, if they get extremely good results in the, the coming games, you can buy other teams with higher odds after that happens and pretty much cash out your bet. Mm. So when you see Germany w- with odds of 27 to 1 and Belgium 23 to 1, that's pretty much the tendency, in my opinion. You, you can buy and then cash out your bet. So you got to look for value in the, in the teams that have, you know, big prices. Definitely. Cool. Well, that sort of brings us on to, uh, to tomorrow's games then, Lee. And uh, you wanted to touch on Japan before we move on to the Spain-Germany clash, which is obviously the headline clash of, of tomorrow's game. But, but tell me what you wanted to tell me about Japan. I think Japan, obviously, the scoreline on its own coming back to beat Germany 2-1 is notable. But 
what was really interesting about Japan is that we've seen something already at this tournament that we don't tend to see from them. We we usually know what we're going to get from Japan coming into a tournament. They're they're technically extremely strong. The technical base in terms of the coach education and player education in Japan is perhaps second only to Spain in terms of how technically able footballers are when they come out of that system. And that's part of the reason that we see so many of them coming across and, and doing really well, especially in the likes of um, likes of Germany, Belgium, Scotland now with Celtic coming their Japanese enclave. And now they're even in, um, Japanese players starting to permeate into the Premier League. But I think that what was most notable from the game was how tactically flexible and intelligent their coaching was. Because they, they came into the game and obviously they were a little bit more cautious. But you would be coming up against Germany. I, I'd actually tipped Germany to do very well in this tournament. I think that they were a little bit overlooked coming into it. And they have quite a good young core of players coming through. Jamal Musiala in particular. But Yusuf Mukoko, the, the Dortmund forward, if he gets a chance, he's a very good bet to get a goal. Um, not that, again, if you're ever considering betting, don't follow me. Follow Lucas. My my wife has has always said that she's really confused that when I did bet before I used to play in football, I never used to make any money from it, and that was only with ten pound stakes a month. Um, never any good at it. But Japan were very very effective when they had to change the game. When they came into it, their their fullbacks were quite passive and sitting back. But by the end of the game, both fullbacks had been replaced by really attacking players, players who played more wing back even wingers, they were essentially ta- attacking with a line of five towards the end of the game against a Germany team who are dangerous in transition. Mm. I think the bravery of the Japanese coaching staff to to turn around and, and play in that way against a Germany side that were already a goal up, so admittedly he probably had nothing to lose at that point. But when Japan put, especially like the Mitoma, Karu Mitoma, the, the Brighton player, when he came on, his direct running and pace and quickness really made a difference to the game for me. Um, I'm interested to see how they got on. Obviously, Costa Rica, I think if, if we're being kind, they're probably the second worst team that we've seen so far, probably behind Qatar, but it'd be very, very close for me. Mm. Um, Costa Rica looked like they, they've aged really badly. I know the, the coach of Costa Rica has left some notable players behind because he's quite stubborn in his approach and, and the way that he handles the squad so it'll be interesting to see exactly how Japan do I would expect them to line up in a more attacking way and I think it could be a really exciting entertaining game I I have to admit when I saw that Brian Ruiz was included in Costa Rica's squad I was uh, actually surprised that Brian Ruiz was still playing professional football <laughs> so uh, but there's always a player like that in every tournament you go wow is he still playing um, so he was very much that one that one for me, uh, but no, I think I think you'd, I, I'd have to agree with uh, with that with with Costa Rica, unfortunately. But uh, okay, so um, and then uh, Lucas, is there anything interesting in the in the Japan Costa Rica market then? Because um, obviously, a win for Japan would see them see them through to the next stage. And as we're looking at it, you'd have to assume that's the result that's going to come. Well, Japan has certainly been taken more seriously after the first victory. They're the favorites with odds in the region of 1.46 to win the game, which reflects the market expectation of their victory around 60%, which is even not that much, if you ask my opinion. 
I guess that maybe a bet in Japan could be interesting here, and but um, I mean the one X two markets in the handicapping markets. I'm not really sure if they want to attack Costa Rica as much as Spain did. So yeah, Japan looking good here. Okay, good stuff. And then uh, Lee, you you can have free reign. We've also got another three games happening tomorrow. Which which one would you like to dive into next? And that isn't me forgetting what we agreed before the podcast in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. I like to keep it an open forum here. I think it probably makes sense to do Spain Germany next. Really? Well, I knew that one was coming. I was thinking more about did you want to talk about anything on the other two games? But yeah, cool. Spain Germany. Yeah, I think that obviously this is the first game of this tournament where we're really going to see two of the heavyweights going against each other. Um, there's a bit more jeopardy than I thought there would be when mm. you look at these stages beforehand. And I think that we, most people expected Germany and Spain both to get off to good starts in the group and maybe be in a position where they could act in a way similar to England and that, you know, a nil-nil draw wouldn't be the worst result going into the final round of group games. I think that's potentially still the case for Spain, but Germany certainly have to come out and, and get a result here. Um, they could conceivably be on their way home after this match because of how good Spain looked, but I just can't call it. I think it's so close between the two. From a tactical perspective, they're almost set up to, to negate each other so well beforehand. I think Germany, we saw set up in their 4-2-3-1 system under Hansi Flick, and that's with Jamal Muziala uh, out in the wide area, where he's obviously very dangerous, and Serge Nagby over on the other side. So they have pace, they have creativity, they have attacking threat in the wide areas. I think the biggest concern was playing Kai Havertz as the nine. He's a player who I've rated really highly since he came through at Bayer Leverkusen. But whenever we really spoke about him properly, I think we have to acknowledge that the biggest problem he has is that nobody knows what his best position is. Mm. At Leverkusen, he played almost as a free forward. He, he didn't quite play as a 10. He didn't quite play as a 9. He didn't quite play as a wide player. He was allowed almost free reign to attack spaces, similar to the way, I suppose, if you're drawing a parallel, very similar to the way that Thomas Muller played for years at Bayern Munich, where he would play ostensibly as a 10 or from wide on the right, but he was never there. Whenever you looked for him, he just always seemed to be in a position that would catch you by surprise. And that's part of why he was so effective. And I think that if Kai Havertz was used in that way, it would be very effective. But obviously it can't be because Thomas Muller is also in the team. And you can't have two players doing that when you need a focal point on attack. So I think that for all that Germany can be progressive, line-breaking, aggressive going forward, I think the lack of a real focal point in attack is what will hold them back in this game. That and the fact that they're going to have to find some way to get the ball off Spain. I think that Joshua Kimmich is obviously one of the the, the top, top ball-winning midfielders in Europe, if you like. But he's more than a ball-winner and that he's also very good on the ball. But he's going to find it very difficult, even with a player as intelligent as Ilke Gundogan beside him, to get around the Spain midfield. When Busquets, uh, however old he is now, he's another one who just seemed to to never slow down. And, and obviously, pace playing the sixth position for Barcelona and Spain isn't really an issue, which is why he's in there and Rodri's not. But Busquets, along with the more youthful exuberance of Pedri on one side of him, Gabi on the other, those three players alone will just move the German block from side to side. They'll move them around. 
they'll create little pockets of space that they can then dart into. And we saw against Costa Rica that if you allow the Spain side to get into their stride properly, they can break you down as well. They're not just possession for possession's sake, mm. which has been the criticism of Spain before. They're much more vertical in that, where they will play the short, sharp passes to move you from side to side. But as soon as you make a mistake and leave an opening your defensive block, they'll penetrate it and they'll go through it and they'll, they'll cause you a problem and get right up against your defensive line. So I think going at this game, it, it's really a coin toss, which doesn't tend to be the case at this stage. Normally you can lean more one way or another, but I can't pick a winner in this game. So it's definitely an interesting one, especially with the way Spain are playing, and they play in such a way that protects Busquets and the way that he has to play now to still be such a fundamental part of the game. Surely if Germany are going to continue and play Müller in ostensibly the 10 position, other than that possibly being the oldest clash that we're going to have on a, on a pitch in terms of zonal football, this uh, this tournament with Müller versus Busquets in there. Would it not make more sense for Flick to be looking at moving one of the younger, faster, more dynamic players into the 10 area, just so that they can try and turn Busquets around a lot more and certainly not allow him just to go and play the way that he's going to want to, to play this game? Yeah, I think it was for, if it was me, I would be doing that. But I might have been tempted if that was the case to move Mueller forward and take Havertz out. Yeah, yeah. Just so we still have Mueller, and I think Mueller is one of these players. I think he's such an effective player, and that's more. Obviously, he is top class. He is world class. You don't play for Bayern Munich as long as he has. You don't play for Germany for as long as he has without being at that level. But he always just looks almost like he's wandered on the pitch by accident after a night out. And mm. it's more like watching somebody rock up the Sunday League football before realising that actually they're, they're miles and miles ahead of you. Um, but in this game, I would put Muller up as the nine. I would be tempted to move Musiala into the 10 role behind him, where Musiala is such an intelligent football player. He really is one that I think England will be kicking themselves that they let get away, given that he played for England at youth level. Um I think it, now he's coming to the point where he has been potentially the best player in the Bundesliga this season, despite his young age and his ability to find little pockets of space in between the lines to receive the ball. It's very similar in a lot of ways to the way that Pedri plays for Barcelona and Spain. Never seems to be hurried, always in the right position, always open to receive, and his feet are so extremely quick. There were a couple of times in the Japan game that he got the ball and shifted it so quickly that he bought a foul for this team when the player committing a foul didn't even know he kicked him but obviously he had these other the replays he just moved that quickly he's difficult to pin down I would move him inside and, and look at Leroy Sane coming on to the left hand side of the attack and even switch over with Navri having from the right if that's what you want to do but I think in this game Spain are so good in possession that you have to set up to take them in transition and to mm. take them in transition, you're going to need pace, you're going to need direct running, you're going to need players who can burst past def the defensive line from deeper areas and still get to the ball. And I think that Sane is probably the, the player in the the Germany squad, other than maybe Karim Adiemi, if he's fully fit. Julie Brandt is more of a creative player than a quick player. So I would certainly be looking to get Sane on the pitch, I think. No, I think that's, that's, that is a good shout. I think for, for me, I'd be looking to... Keep, I'd probably move Muller into one of the two wide areas to maybe exploit a little bit of space for the Spanish fullbacks pushing pushing high 
But um, and then yeah, probably move Nabry over to the left hand side, and I'd, I'd probably keep Havertz inside personally because I still think that um, yeah, although he doesn't always look like he's massively involved in the game, he does then have that moment of absolute quality in his game, which which could be all decisive in this sort of game, which should be in theory an incredibly tight occasion. So so and then you can bring on Asane to uh, for for a bit more pace if needed. Um, as the as the game opens up a little bit more, maybe. But hey, I I, I don't know any of this stuff, Lee, as we've discussed many a time over the, over the years. But Lucas, so then this obviously is a very tight game, and then immediately this is the sort of game where you think, well, it's probably just worth not even looking at the betting markets for because is there going to be any value in it whatsoever? What what have you seen in there which might be of interest and of value? Well, it's always it's always interesting to mention that sometimes when a team when the way Spain has just won against uh, Costa Rica, things can be a little twisted in terms of the odds because obviously Germany isn't Costa Rica, but there is some kind of excitement around this kind of score that they could get. And uh, in the beginning of the tournament, you had a leveled game in terms of odds, but now Spain are considered slightly favorites. But personally, I believe this is a game to follow in the live betting markets because I don't feel comfortable making, you know, predictions in the sense to to back with money, if mm. you will. What about the? And again, this is not me saying that anybody should go and do this. But what would the? Uh, what would Germany be? be- Germany keeping a clean sheet. What that's come? What's that coming in at? Well, I, I guess it, you need to have a deep understanding of the tactics to make this kind of bet. But uh, well, if you consider what Luis Enrique has mentioned that his his plan to this World Cup to attack a lot, even if they're winning, I guess this could be a bit of a risky bet. No, I don't get back again. I was looking at it from the point of view with looking for value. Spain have just won seven nil. Germany have just lost. Therefore, a, 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 a layman's assumption, and I am nowhere near anything near even beginner level, let alone expert level on this. You'd think then that maybe the German clean sheet would be quite decent odds because nobody's expecting Germany to keep a clean sheet in this game, given that Spain have just scored seven and the fact that Germany have just lost to uh, just lost to Japan. Well. Perhaps yes, but to be honest, I don't trust their defense that much to to hold this kind of bet. Because even if they can get a good result, I think there are good chances they will not, you know, end the game with a clean sheet. But so, the World Cup is interesting because you get these kind of markets with decent liquidity. Because in general, you have more like match results and outright odds as as the most important ones. But as you said could be valuable, but still any kind of market, if you can follow it live for a few minutes to see how the game is unfolding, mm. it helps a lot. There's a saying between professional punters that when you prepare for a game to bet, it's like studying for to, to do well on a test. But if you follow the game live for 15 minutes, it's almost like cheating on a test. So live betting can be interesting because you, you can absorb so much information from the first minutes of the game and in a game that is so complicated like this one that would be my option here that's probably very sound advice especially when spain go one nil up in the second minute and uh, that clean sheet has disappeared within within a uh, 60 to 120 seconds good stuff and then lee is there anything interesting from your point of view 
from the from the other two games that are happening tomorrow, which uh, Belgium versus Morocco, and obviously Belgium would be hoping to be looking a little bit more impressive than they did, and then Croatia versus Canada, with Canada hoping to to actually put the ball in the net this time round, having been very impressive against Belgium in in their opening match. Yeah, I think we can probably touch on them both just really quickly with the first one. I think that Belgium Morocco is going to be interesting because Belgium looked so clunky and not fluid at all against Canada. And I, I agree, I was really impressed with Canada. And I think that's the big takeaway so far from this tournament. I think that, that Canada looked like they, they are worthy of some of the hype in terms of being one of the more fun teams to watch in the tournament. But we've known for a long time that Belgium were ageing. We, we talked on an earlier podcast that the big problem they have is that how badly they're ageing in some positions, particularly centre-back. And I think that to give Morocco their due going into this game, I think that Morocco have looked the strongest so far of the African sides. Mm. I was impressed with Tunisia more in their first group game match, I would have to say, as opposed to, to the one today against Australia when they, they perhaps didn't do themselves justice. But I think Morocco look really, really interesting. They look very good in possession. They've got a good core of players who, who are playing at a very high level and the likes of Hakimi, who with that pace and power that he has, and Ziyech didn't perhaps perform that well in the first group stage game, but he always has the ability to unlock a defence. They, they seem to have a set of underrated players who who do very well in European football. Um, I think that they're going to come at this game, and I would be edging them actually to take it ahead of Belgium based on the first group game performances. But the most more interesting one is probably Canada, Croatia, um, Canada look like everything that Croatia and Belgium aren't. I think Croatia are similar to Belgium in that they're ageing in a lot of places. I mean, they, they have Josko Guardiol, the, the RB Leipzig centre-half, who I think he's around the 20 mark, and he is one of the best German defenders in European football. That's why Chelsea were linked to an 80 to £100 million bid for him just at the end of the transfer window there. Um, and he does, does absolutely look the part. They have interesting younger players coming through who are in the first choice. Lovro Meyer at, at Rennes in France looks like a, a very good midfielder, but they're still sticking with the tried and trusted players that have got them through the last however many tournaments when Croatia have always been a club, that, a, a country, sorry, that have performed above expectations. I think the big problem they have now is finding goals. Kramaric just looked a shadow of himself in that first group stage game and they, they didn't look like they had a real thrust in the ability to go up another level if you like. Whereas Canada are all youthful exuberance and pace and shoulder. Atiba Hutchinson thanks you for that comment. <laughs> Atiba Hutchinson will be in the, the Canada team until probably he's in his 70s at this rate and Junior Hoyle as well is another one who's been yeah. around for a long time but those older, more experienced players are surrounded by the likes of Tejon Buchanan, Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David, even Steven Eustachio, who's finally getting the credit in Europe that he deserves, having been very good in Portugal for a couple of years before he got the move this past summer to Porto. And obviously now he's making his mark in the Champions League too. They have a group of players who seem to be able to organise themselves against the ball. Uh, John Herman obviously likes them to be aggressive and quick and dynamic and closing down the spaces and putting pressure on the ball carrier. But it's in transition. In the modern game, so much of it is about transition. 
and about being able to play quickly and vertically before your opponent can get set and take advantage of those moments when the defence isn't set yet and isn't in a, a prime position. And if you have the pace of Alfonso Davies coupled up, I mean, he essentially played wing-back with Junior Hoylet in front of him, and Junior Hoylet was probably not quite as quick when he was at his peak, never mind now, but having a player like Davies able to overlap and underlap around that player just caused so many problems to the Belgian defence, and I can see it being similar for Croatia. No, definitely, definitely. On the uh, and on both of those games, then Lucas, anything interesting in the in the markets? Well, both Belgium and Croatia have the same expectations in the markets in terms of winning the game, with odds around uh, a reflection of fifty uh, percent of chance to win the game to both teams. I guess we can say that the markets consider that they underperformed a little. If you consider Croatia as the current runners-up in Belgium, well, they have been underperforming this entire generation. So it's in, at least in the eyes of uh, the media. And we can say that maybe there is some value in the bet of uh, Belgium in the 1x2 markets. I'm not so sure about Croatia because if they couldn't even beat Morocco, but uh, it's a good set of games to follow, maybe live. Good stuff. I'm, I'm already feeling a, a Morocco-Canada double there, personally. I don't, I don't know why. I just, I, I, I really feel like this Belgian team, and they're going to prove me completely wrong now, of course, and, and go out and, and dominate. But it does feel like this is one tournament too many for them um, as, a, as a group, and also Roberto Martinez. And maybe the same a little bit with Croatia, but I was so impressed with Canada and their fearlessness in their, in their opening game. Um, that would be just just great to see them go out and get and get a win in uh, in this game for, for the uh, for the entertainment side of it too because they obviously did well. I think the stat was they created more they they had more touches in the box and created more chances than uh, than Spain did uh, when Spain won seven nil, which would says a lot about that game uh, for, from that perspective. But no, it should be a good day's worth of football. And then we're we're just finishing up now, uh, moments before the France-Denmark game kicks off tonight. Lee, have you got any thoughts on that one? I think I'm looking forward to seeing France again, um, perhaps more than Denmark. Denmark were quite highly rated coming at this tournament, far as highly rated as suppose as Denmark can really be. Um, they were very, very good in qualifying, didn't concede a goal, I think, until the, the final qualifying round when they finally got beaten. Obviously, they're in Scotland's group, so I saw them quite closely. They're another one who there's a lot of attacking talent that they left on the bench. I think that playing a three-at-the-back system as they did in the first group game and having Christian Eriksen essentially playing off the left wing, they had nobody to progress the ball with a, a Thomas Delaney and Pierre Hoiberg double pivot yeah. in the midfield, and their defenders aren't really good enough to progress the ball in that way either. I think that's what they have to solve to, to get anything from this game. And I think they solve it by, by moving Ericsson inside. They look better when they moved Ericsson inside. And they look better when Jesper Lindstrom, the, the Frankfurt wide attacker, came on. He's very exciting, really, really creative player. I think they need to be more dynamic in their team selection if they want to have a chance against France because France just looked like they were toying with the opposition the last time around. And they looked like they could turn up the turn the screws on at any time if if Mbappe wasn't messing about he volleyed one over the bar from from a great cross in the area and I think if if he was perhaps 
more focused. Not that he wasn't focused, but if they were desperately needing a goal in that game, I think they could have gone up another couple of levels quite easily. Um, interesting to see again how Chimeni plays for France. I think he was excellent in the first game, and and I think that they really have the makings of a team who who will go far in the tournament. So I'm looking forward to the game, but I do have France quite comfortably. I think. Yeah, I think uh, they they were impressive in that game, and uh, and and everyone's talking about Denmark being these great dark horses for the tournament, but. I don't buy into that personally and, and didn't see enough in the first game to to see that being a, a potential thing. But it would be good to see Ericsson playing in, in the in a ten role um because he's he is wasted when he's uh left out uh, like he was in, in that in that opening day game. But uh, but yeah. Good stuff. Okay guys, well look, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to those of you that are listening. Um and uh, as we said at the start of the show, we mentioned a few times before, if you are doing any form of gambling throughout the tournament, do be gamble aware. Don't bet anything more than you than you afford to lose. And this is only advice. We're not saying absolutely go and do anything that we've said. It's just from uh, Lucas's experience, his thoughts and opinions on the on the situation. Uh, this has been the Total Football Analysis Daily. Um, you've got me again tomorrow. Um, Lee, are you on? No, I don't think so. Good stuff. Lucas, are you with me tomorrow? Yes. Wonderful. At least I'll recognize somebody uh, on the on the podcast then. So I can look forward to that. Thank you very much, folks. And uh, we will see you again tomorrow. 